You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon, our scripture reading comes from the first book of scripture from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. I think the context here is familiar to many of us. We know the story of Joseph, how he ended up in Egypt, how his brothers were later reunited with him along with his father, Jacob. At this point, Jacob's father has, or Joseph's father rather, Jacob has passed away. So we're here at Genesis 50 at verse 15. Listen to God's word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him. So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please, forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The text for the sermon this afternoon is the first psalm, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Beloved congregation of Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you thought it was kind of strange last Sunday morning when we sang Psalm 90. As we often do, we sang the whole psalm, and that included stanza four, which says, For we are all consumed by thy great anger, and in dismay we've seen thy fury linger. If you think about it, what are we doing singing those words? We've been saved by Christ. How can we say that we are consumed by God's anger? Well, those kinds of questions come up more often when we sing the Psalms in worship. These are Old Testament songs. And oftentimes, they seem to be disconnected from our New Testament lives. 
Well, these kinds of questions, these kinds of issues are one of the reasons why I want to preach a series of sermons on the Psalms in the coming months. It's important that we understand what we're singing in the worship services and in other places. But there's more. The Psalms are God's Word to us. And as such, they reveal who God is. They show us Christ. They show Christ's work to us. Also, the, the, the Psalms teach us how to pray. And they show us other aspects of living in relationship with our God. So in the coming weeks, we're going to go through a number of the Psalms. And eventually, we also hope to get to Psalm 90 and answer those questions that I mentioned a moment ago. Today, however, we're at the beginning. We're beginning at the beginning with the first psalm. When we think of the psalms, we often think of a, a song of praise to God. This psalm, Psalm 1, is not like that. In fact, it's what we call a wisdom psalm. It's more like the Proverbs than it's like many of the other psalms. This psalm was written to teach God's people something about wisdom. And as such, it was put at the beginning of the book of Psalms, not by accident, but deliberately as kind of a doorway. As you enter into this book of Psalms, you're reminded that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are, who are wise, those who, in, in the words of this psalm, are, are righteous in God's sight. And then there's other people. They're the fools. Those are the ones who stand condemned before a holy God. This psalm lays out the difference between these two. And so I'll preach to you God's Word this afternoon with this theme and division, the difference between the righteous and the wicked. We'll see it, first of all, in their associates, second, in their assessment of and attitude towards God's Word, and then finally, in their appointed end. Well, first of all, the difference in their associates. Our psalm begins with a declaration about a certain kind of person. And the NIV translates this as saying, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, we could fill that out a little bit more. And we could say, Oh, the, the sheer happiness of the person who does not walk and, and so on. The word in Hebrew that's translated there as blessed often refers to a state of existence that's characterized by sheer joy and, and happiness. A person who has this state of being, you look at him and you say, that's the kind of person I want to be like. And just who is this person? The first verse describes this person by means of three negatives. You could say that for a person to fit this description, he or she stays away from three roads. And each of those three roads has a no-entry sign posted in front of it. These roads or paths, they stand for three different kinds of associations. First off, we learn that the blessed person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Walking in the counsel of the wicked means that a person from time to time he listens to the advice of people who are unfaithful, to people who are deliberately disobedient to the Lord. may not be a habit, but still, occasionally, it happens. The blessed ones 
are not even occasionally listening to the advice of those who are at war with God. The psalmist then adds that you do not stand in the way of sinners. Now you have to notice there's a progression happening here. We've gone from walking to standing. When you stand, you're lingering, you're hanging around. You're beginning to feel more comfortable with God's enemies. You don't mind to take off your jacket and hang it up and, and stay a while. Well, just a little while, mind you. Well, those who have sheer happiness from God, not like this. Nor do they sit in the seat of mockers. Again, this progression, right? Walking, standing, and now sitting. Sitting in the seat of mockers means that a person has taken his or her place. Sitting in that spot means that you've identified yourself with that particular crowd. And the crowd in question here is a bad bunch. They're mockers. Who do they mock? Well, naturally, they're mockers of God. They're not interested in praising their Creator. Instead, they take their joy and delight in making jokes about Him, if they acknowledge Him at all. More often, they ignore Him. And otherwise, they just plain live in enmity towards Him. These wicked, these sinners, these mockers, they're all people who have taken their place, taken their stand against God. The way to blessedness, the way to sheer happiness steers clear away from associations with these kinds of people. Believers know that the company you keep can say a lot about what lives in your heart. Believers also know that the company you keep can affect what lives in your heart and what happens in your life. Think here of what Paul writes in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. It ought to be relatively easy for us to see how this teaching applies to our lives. Let's briefly take a look at that. Since the psalm defines it in negative terms, we can do the same. We are redeemed by Christ. One of the parts of that, one of the aspects of that, is that we have union with Him. We are in Christ. We have our identity in Him. So the message of this psalm becomes even stronger for us than it was for Old Testament believers. You think about it. If we are in Christ... How can we even take the step of occasionally placing ourselves in the counsel of the wicked? What are some ways that we might do that? I'll mention one way, and then perhaps you can work with this a little more and think of the many other ways that you could do this. But just one way, let's say that you've hit a rough spot in your marriage. You have some people you work with. Maybe you study with them. They're not Christians but you ask for their advice on your marriage problems. Walking in the counsel of the wicked. And there's also standing in the way of sinners. This is a lingering, a a hanging around from time to time. Once in a while you go to places on the internet where you have no business being. From time to time you indulge yourself in things that do not fit with your identity in Christ. You associate yourself with people. You associate yourself with things that simply don't 
fit with who you are. Blessedness and sheer happiness will escape you. And how much more if you sit in the seat of mockers? This is where you take the final step and you make your real commitment public. You're not really committed to Christ. You're committed to being with those who find their identity in rebellion. There's a sense in which stolen bread is sweet. You'll enjoy it for a time. But ultimately, this is not the way of blessedness, not the way of sheer happiness either. Brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ, that's us, we follow a different path, don't we? If we love Christ, we will want to walk in the counsel of the righteous. We will want to stand in the way of those who are committed to our Lord. More and more, the work of the Spirit in us. We earnestly desire to sit among those who are worshipers of God. In other words, if we love Christ, we will also love His church, His bride, His people. The Holy Spirit lives among God's people, giving them wisdom, giving them sound counsel. The Holy Spirit lives among God's people, equipping them to encourage and to support one another in their desire to serve God together. This psalm teaches redeemed people that there is blessedness, there is sheer happiness in fellowship with one another. We need one another. That's also what we confess in the Belgic Confession, Article 34. We confess that no one should withdraw from the church of Christ. And then it goes on, content to be by himself, no matter what his state or quality may be. But all and everyone are obliged to join it and unite with it, maintaining the unity of the church. That's the end of the quote. Those who find their righteousness in Christ are going to associate with others who do the same. And in that way, God will use us as instruments for change in the lives of one another. Let's now move on to our next point where we're going to see the difference between the righteous and the wicked in their assessment of and their attitude towards the Word of God. The second verse begins with that small word, but. Right? Really, that word, but, should should have all capital letters, and perhaps it should even have a, a couple of exclamation marks behind it in brackets. That's because in the original, this is a very emphatic expression. There's a big contrast being indicated here. The righteous don't find their happiness in associating with rebels. Instead, they find a delight, they find a happiness in the law of God. Now, you should know that that's not a specific reference to the Ten Commandments or to any other part of the Bible which says you shall do this or you shall not do that. Rather, this is a a poetic way of referring to the whole Bible. We could say that the blessed man delights in God's Word. And there's an implicit contrast here with the wicked. Because the wicked, they could care less about God, and so they could also care less about what what he says in the Bible. It's like in the election campaign that's, that's going on right now in Canada. If there's a particular party you're absolutely never going to vote for, you're not going to be spending a lot of time at their website looking at their campaign platform. You're committed to not voting for them. And so you could care less about what they stand for. 
The wicked are the same in their commitment against God. They don't give any attention. They don't care what He says. This is where the blessed, the righteous, are entirely different. They find delight in God's Word. And the word that's used for delight there in our text is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to costly jewels and to refer to treasure. Just like a man or more likely a woman would find some some joy and delight in, in diamonds. So the blessed ones, they find their joy and they find their delight in God's Word. They, they, they treasure it and they value it. Now the interesting thing is that when this Hebrew word for delight is used in the Old Testament, God Himself is never the object. never says that the blessed man delights in God. Most often it refers to God's Word, to His law, especially in the Psalms. Why is that? Well, God usually relates to man through His Word. It's impossible to know God without revelation from Him. His Word reveals who He is. And therefore, when we take pleasure or delight in the Bible, which we're supposed to, we're also taking pleasure in the God who who reveals Himself there. The second half of verse 2 says that the blessed one meditates on God's law day and night. And the word used there for meditating describes a kind of mumbling or a reading to oneself. The one who meditates is constantly going over what God's Word says in his heart. He's probably also talking out loud to himself. Day and night, this person is constantly reflecting on what God says. Again, it's not too difficult to apply this to our lives. What I mean is that it's not difficult to see how it applies. It's definitely challenging to make it work in our lives. The way of sheer happiness involves a a positive assessment, a positive attitude about God's revelation in the Bible. And these things, this assessment, this attitude, results in action. I remember once reading a, a story about a man in the United States. I don't remember his name anymore. He'd, he'd grown up in a non-Christian family, and then through some means, and again, I don't remember how it happened, but Christ brought him to repentance and conversion. And shortly after his conversion, he was involved in a terrible accident. I think it was a, a natural gas explosion in his home. He was badly burned. He, he became blind. He lost both his arms. But his faith in Christ remained. Though he could no longer read normally, he still wanted to read his Bible. There was so much more for him to learn. He'd only just begun. So he learned to read Braille. Now remember, he lost both his arms. He learned to read Braille with his tongue. He was so bent on reading the Bible that he did whatever it took, even if that meant reading the Bible with his tongue. Does that same delight, does that same desire for God's Word, does that also fill our hearts? Or do we perhaps, do we maybe begin to take the the Bible for granted? It's a book we take with us to, to church maybe on Sunday. Maybe we read it with our families, but other than that, it sits on the shelf. Brothers and sisters, we are richer than the psalmist who penned Psalm 1. He knew part of God's revelation. 
He knew the promises that were there. He knew the promises leading to the Messiah. But we know the fulfillment of those promises. We know all about Jesus Christ from the New Testament. And we do love Him, don't we? The whole Bible points us to Him. And so then, because of our love for Him, we ought to be spending as much time with His Word as we possibly can. We should be making regular use of our Bibles, for instance, in in doing personal devotions. That's a spiritual discipline that brings sheer happiness, that brings blessedness to our lives. The Holy Spirit works through the Word to bring us growth, to bring change in our lives, and and to give us progress in holiness. And what about meditation? I suspect that many of us don't have this as part of our lives. We don't often talk about it, do we? What does meditation look like for New Testament believers? It can have different faces. But here's one. Meditation can work with Scripture passages that you've memorized. We all had to, or maybe we are doing, memory work in in school. But even as adults, we should make memorization of Scripture a, a priority, a regular habit. Because when we have Scripture memorized, we can recall it. We can meditate on it. We can reflect on it, chew it over, so to speak, wherever we might be. You might be a student taking the bus. Maybe somebody who has a long commute to a, to a job. You've got a lot of time on your hands. Perhaps some of that time, if you're a student taking the bus, maybe some of that time you spend studying. But why not also spend some time meditating on a portion of Scripture that you've memorized? Someone once compared the Bible to a love letter. When you get a love letter, you read it over and over and over again. You delight in the words of your lover. The Bible is kind of like that. The Bible is a love letter from God. He loves us deeply. And we love Him too, don't we? And won't our love then compel us to dwell on His Word, to delight in it, to meditate on it? Because it's in His Word that we learn more about who our lover is and what He's done. And finally, we come to the, the difference between the righteous and the wicked and their appointed end. Psalm uses two powerful images to contrast what happens to the righteous and what happens to the wicked. First, we get the positive image about the righteous. The righteous, the one who is blessed, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. Well, living in a a place with a lot of green trees and a lot of streams of water right now, even at this time of year, we, we don't have too much difficulty imagining this. In fact, for us, green trees and streams of water may even be a little bit ho-hum. So what? Another tree, another stream of water. But put yourself in the context of the psalmist. Imagine a very dry climate with not a lot of green vegetation. At least not a lot that stays around all year. In that context, a tree that stays green all the time It's something remarkable. A tree that has flowing streams of water beside it all the time, that's something out of the ordinary. 
This is what the righteous man can be compared to. He's blessed, but he's also a blessing. After all, what do trees do? Trees give shelter. They give healing. Trees give life. Green trees produce fruit that also benefits others. So the image of the tree is a, is a picture of God's design for believers, a powerful picture. He wants believers to be firmly rooted in the ground so that nothing can come along and blow them over. God wants believers to be productive and, and fruitful. He wants them to grow. God's plan for believers is that they would be blessed and that they would be a blessing for others in their lives. That they would produce food for other hungry people. Now the opposite image is equally powerful. The wicked are completely unlike a green tree. Instead, the psalmist says, they're like chaff. I think anyone who ever gets hay fever knows about chaff. Chaff is dead plant material. It's dry, separated, tiny. It's blown apart. It's disintegrating. Chaff, if you can get your hands on it, should be burned. But more often it just gets blown around by any wind that passes by. Even the slightest breeze. Chaff is rootless. Chaff is dead. This is the picture of the wicked in this psalm. That's why verse 5 tells us that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That's why verse 6 says that the wicked will perish. There's no life in them now. And there never will be. There's no hope for the wicked. The righteous will stand in the judgment. The righteous will stand in the assembly of the righteous. God watches over their ways. Actually, the Hebrew says that God knows the ways of the righteous. That means that God has an intimate care. He has a concern for them. Now we could come with two questions. First of all, why? What makes the difference between the righteous and the wicked? We all know that there are no perfect people. We realize that there is an ideal set out in this psalm that none of us can attain to with any degree of consistency. That's where Christ comes in the picture. Christ is the only one who has consistently followed the wisdom of God in this psalm. Christ never walked in the counsel of the wicked. Not even for a moment. He never stood in the way of sinners. Christ never sat in the seat of mockers. Christ delighted to do the will of His Father. Christ was and He is the tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit for the life of all who believe. Christ gives food and drink to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And didn't we also experience the truth of that this morning as we celebrated the Lord's Supper together? So when we sing this psalm, Psalm 1, as we're going to do in a couple of minutes, we should be thinking about Christ. We should be thinking about the perfections of our Savior as we sing Psalm 1. Reflect on who He is. Be thinking about what He has done for you personally and for us all. But then we also have to take things one step further. Because we are in Christ. 
by faith. Christ's perfections are ours. Because of that, we are righteous in God's eyes. God sees people who are green trees. God sees people who are clothed with the white robes of Christ's righteousness. It's only because of Christ and who we are in Him that we will be able to stand in the final day of judgment. It's only because of Christ and who we are in Him that we can stand on any given day. And that brings us to the second question. The psalm says, whatever he does prospers. Whatever the the righteous man does prospers. The psalm says that the one who avoids the wicked will be blessed. And how do we explain the suffering of God's people then and now? We can all think of examples from our own lives and, and from the Bible of people who suffer and suffer and then suffer some more. They don't seem to prosper. They don't seem to be receiving blessings from God. The one whose body is full of cancer, he doesn't seem to be a a green tree full of life and vigor. Well, eventually I hope to preach on Psalm 73. And then we're going to address these questions more fully. That psalm gives an answer. But now here are a couple of things to think about just for, for right now. First off, this psalm gives us a general rule. Wisdom literature in the Bible is like that. There are general rules. You'll find that in the Proverbs as well. And these general rules sometimes have exceptions. But generally speaking, we can expect the righteous, those who are in Christ, to receive all manners of blessings. We can expect that they will prosper and that things will go well for them. And second of all, what does it mean to prosper and to be blessed? The definition of that. Does that necessarily mean that you're always given good health? Does that necessarily mean that you always have a a full bank account? Think of Joseph, who we read about earlier. Joseph was a man who remained a sinner. And he also desired to follow the Lord. Hebrews 11 talks about Joseph as well as many of the other Old Testament patriarchs. And Hebrews 11 tells us that he believed the promises. Therefore, we can say, because of that faith in God's promises, that he was righteous in God's eyes. Did things always go so smoothly in his life? Well, you know the story of Joseph and his brothers. You know what happened when Joseph got to Potiphar's house? But at the end of it all, as he stood near the end of his life and his brothers came groveling at his feet, Joseph could look back and he could see God's hand in it. He could see God's hand in it for good. God's blessings sometimes come to us in mysterious, unfathomable ways. The problem is with us. The problem is our inability to see the big picture. And at its root, this has nothing to do with our sinfulness. Everything to do with our humanity. Because we are creatures. We are not the Creator. 
We cannot grasp, we cannot understand everything that the sovereign God plans for our lives. Oh, we want to know. Because knowledge is power. Knowledge is control. But we have to see the simple truth that our God loves us. He cares for us. We have to be willing to see His fatherly love and His almighty power. We have to trust that even though we can't fathom it, He's blessing us, even in the middle of a rough time in our lives. That's all because of God's love for us in Christ. And brothers and sisters, the difference between the righteous and the wicked, it boils down to who Christ is for them. And that presents us with a choice. Which picture in this psalm is the picture of our lives? Are we, by God's grace and power, by the working of the Holy Spirit, are we the tree which is alive? The tree which is firmly rooted? The tree which bears fruit for God and for our neighbor? Or are we, through our own fault, our own deliberate disobedience, are we the chaff that's fit only for burning? Are we in Christ and so alive? Or are we resting in our own strength and power, thinking we can do without Christ, we can do without God? And so, we're dead. These are questions that this psalm demands we ask of ourselves. And may God give us more grace so that we can answer these questions, that we can answer them in a way that shows the wisdom which is from above. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.